And we are recording. Hey, True Crime family. I'm K-Mac. And I'm The Answer. Oh my god. And this is Bad Human. Hey, true crime family, welcome to Bad Human, a true crime podcast where we discuss those humans that reside at the bottom of the morality bell curve. Now, you had a dramatic pause last episode, so I got to have one this one. Okay, because you do so much on this show that you deserve the same things. I got you thinking about one thing, all right? Anyways. uh, Hearing the bad talk about them at the bar. Anyhow, all right. So before we get started... I first want to read a review. Thank you, Megan. This was very nice. And we appreciate any reviews that people leave on Apple unless they are not nice and they are not five stars. I'm just kidding. Delete. Megan, you can't actually delete them, which is why reviews are so important. Megan shared, I love the way that you tell true crime. Not only are you respectful and informative, but also stay on track and have the perfect pace. So often I've listened to true crime podcasts where they derail on 15 minute tangents which really takes from the continuity of the story. So thank you for not doing that. To true crime listeners everywhere, this is a must listen. Thank you, Megan. I appreciate that. We do listen. We understand that you're listening to this not because you want to hear about what we had for dinner, but you're here for true crime. Perch. Okay, it was Fish Friday last night. That's Mm -hmm. fair enough. Also, Megan is the one who wrote us a fucking amazing holiday poem that we oh, will be sharing. Person. All right. Yeah. So, Megan, has, thank you. Megan is like super fan, stuffed her game up. Well, thank you very much. Megan, I will send you a message on Instagram asking for what shirt size you would like um, because we're going to give you some swag for of taking course. the time to leave a review. So, if you are an Apple listener, you uh, can leave a review if we read it. Awesome. We'd love to give you some swag. You can also leave comments on Spotify for each of the cases. If you could follow, subscribe, it really helps. It just helps with the algorithms and just makes us feel good because we do this because we love true crime, but also because we love connecting with you all. So yeah. with that being said, let's not make Megan look like a liar and talk forever about non-crime shit and let's get to it. We are picking up now on the um, Edmund Emil Kemper III case where we last left you. It's we basically had with the third. given the background of... His horrific childhood, mm-hmm. um, no parents of the year awards mm-hmm. going. He had spent time in a mental hospital where he was essentially given a playbook. Basically a training school, training program. It was a training program essentially for, yes, a sexual <laughs> predator and murderer. He had killed Jimon Jipa, which unfortunately grandpa was most likely collateral damage. He was out of the psychiatric hospital and was now living with Clarnell in Santa Cruz. As we described, Santa Cruz at this point, it's the 70s, very much peace and love. The school is only six years old. Again, Ed had become friends with the police officers. They're the local police force. He was denied his dream of becoming a police officer, but hung out at the jury room, had built connections and friendships, some even described, Mm -hmm. with him. We were at the point where he had been mowed down by a motor vehicle, <laughs> had received a hefty settlement for the time. Sorry, sorry, mowed down. Well, he was roadkill. The 6'9 road behemoth got mowed down. He was roadkill. Yeah, can you imagine the damage to that car? car? You hit a 6'9 well, monster on a motorcycle? Well, Cars back then, though, were tanks. Yes, that's what I was just going to say. What year was that? Because that's true. That was like steel reinforced it was, yeah. frames. That's true. I mean, even when my first car was a Cutlass Sierra, an Oldsmobile, and that mm-hmm. thing was pretty sturdy. Cutlass Supreme. Yeah. Shout like out that. to Oldsmobile. R.I.P. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so like I said... Things were pretty chill in Santa Cruz during this time. So what's about to happen knocked everyone off their rocker. Ed began cruising around and first would pick up women hitchhiking. Now, remember, he also at this point has his kill kit to utilize a BTK or Israel Keys reference. Yeah, you described it Um, last episode. But he first started by just picking women up and then peacefully letting them go. According to Ed, he picked up around 200 hitchhikers who were um, in line. So he had this pattern. He picked them up, but he let them go. He said that this was before 
What? No, I was continue. I was just gonna ask, like, do you, you look think like he... you have something to say? Well, because I was like, which is super rare. So the mic is well, all yours. Well, no, 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 no. Because I was just saying, do you think he did that at first to like maybe if it got word around that oh we can kind of trust this guy in the car hitchhiking? Potentially, he was building like, like a, a reputation as a safe yeah, space. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a good point. That's ch- oh, that was the last episode. You had another good point. I get one per episode. All right. Yeah. Don't. So I hit my over, quota. Don't uh, over five minutes in. All right. Fuck. <sighs> okay. Where the fuck were we? Okay. So basically, <laughs> he he picked. It is a fair point. Maybe yeah, he was trying that's... to build a reputation. He had picked up around two hundred hitchhikers. Um, he said that this was before he felt like these huge sexual urges, right? Which he would later call little zapples and later began acting on said urges zapples that's what he called them that's not a typo it's not supposed to be apples and then i hit the z on accident zapples at the time he blamed the women so he would later in an interview say he blamed the women because that's what we do blame the victim Mm -hmm. he killed for hitchhiking uh, which he said was flaunting in my face the fact they could do any damn thing they wanted and that society is as screwed up as it is he said that most of the time, though, he let them go uh, because there were too many cars around. He didn't want to get caught. So it could have been partially what oh, you're saying. Okay. He was probably also building up the confidence. And then, again, there was just the whole thing. He might get caught. When later asked what crossed his mind when he saw a pretty girl, Ed said, one side of me says, wow, what an attractive chick. I like to talk to her and date her. The other side of me says, I wonder how her head would look oh. on a stick. He said the whole head on a stick thing went back to the days of the nights where they would put people's heads on a pike. I forgot to say at the beginning, too, but again, like, trigger alert for everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Andy's told the story of what he did to... In the last episode, mm-hmm. we talked about the animal abuse, yep. right? But just, again, so I, I saying, forgot to now, say that, but... Now he's thinking of a woman in that role. And hopefully you listened to the first episode before this. Mm-hmm. But, again, trigger warning for, like, everything. Yeah. On May 7th, 1972, Ed was driving in Berkeley when he picked up two 18-year-old hitchhiking students from Fresno State University, Marianne Pesci and Anita uh, Marie Luce, I think it's Lucessa is how you say it, uh, with the promise of taking them to Stanford University. Two women. Mm-hmm. He stated later that one of them had very big, beautiful eyes of which he was attracted to. After driving for an hour, he managed uh, to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda with which he was familiar because of his work with the highway department. Mm -hmm. Without alerting his passengers, he had changed direction. He said he basically talked to them, got them into a conversation, distracted them. They didn't even realize that they they were going the right direction anymore. It was there that he handcuffed Marianne and locked Anita Marie in the trunk. Then he stabbed and strangled Marianne to death. Uh, subsequently killing Anita Marie in a similar manner. Later in an interview, he would say it was high risk and very messy. He later confessed that while handcuffing Marianne, he brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him, adding that he said, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that. Remember, he we talked about this in the last episode. When he went into that mental hospital, he was 15. 15. So he is very okay. underdeveloped when it comes to maturity. So the fact that you have these women handcuffed in your trunk and that you're going to kill them, but you're embarrassed that you brushed her breast. Mm-hmm. Um, he also noted that he chose the women because they seemed upper middle class. of a better class of people than the scroungy, messy, dirty, smelly hippie types I was not interested in at all. He put both the women's bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. He was stopped on the way by a police officer for having a broken taillight, but the officer did not detect the, the bodies in the trunk. Ed's roommate was not home, so he took the bodies into his apartment. This is really fucked up. Like This, this is when we're going to really get into some stuff. that mm-hmm. Part of why we're also so delayed in, in recording this is I had to step away from this case for like a week or two because this is a very sick individual. Ed took the bodies into his apartment where he photographed them had sexual intercourse with the naked corpses and then dismembered them he put their body parts into plastic bags which he later abandoned near the Loma Prieta mountain Ugh, this is so gross I feel gross even saying this shit 
before disposing. And but this case was voted and requested, which I am intrigued by him. But ugh, before I need like a shot of Rumplemans. Before disposing of their severed heads in a ravine, Ed engaged in a sex act that included thrusting his penis into their mouth. And yet he was embarrassed when he brushed his hand on there. But they're dead now, too. But this is a Well, that's what he was trained in the mental hospital. Remember, he was trained. You can't have sex unless they're dead. A decapitated corpse that he is having sex acts with. In August of that year, Marianne's skull was found in the Loma Prieta mountain. An extensive search failed to turn up the rest of her body or any trace of Anita Marie. It was a group of hitchhikers uh, that were in the area that found the human skull on the side of the road. It had deteriorated to the point it was unidentifiable, and they couldn't tell if it was male or female. Detectives thought it was odd to find a body with no head. I mean, yeah, it'd be odd to find a body, period. I imagine headless, yes. They searched the area, but they could not locate anything, Um, which I found odd, too. I'm sorry, actually, I said that wrong. They found the skull. But they couldn't find the rest of the body. Not, I said it the opposite way. Um, they thought it was odd to find the head but no body. They searched the area. They could not locate anything. There were no missing persons reports. Um, so they really had some pretty limited information. Mm-hmm. In a later interview, Ed would state, he threw away all the bloody rags, newspapers, etc. because he did not want to give the cops any leads. He knew one fingerprint and they would have him since he was already in the system. On the evening of September 14, 1972, Ed picked up 15-year-old dance student named Aiko Koo, who had decided to hitchhike to a dance class. Some places I read said she missed the bus. Um, other interviews refute that claim and say that she chose not to. We'll get to that in a second. She was tiny. She was 5'4", 105 pounds. It's basically what I was when I was born. <laughs> I don't ever remember being below a solid two hundo. In an interview, one of her closest friends growing up said at the time that she last saw her, the friend was waiting for the bus and saw Aiko. And then uh, basically the friend was like looking at Aiko thinking, hurry, run, you're going to miss the bus. And she saw her put her thumb out that she was going to hitchhike. Her friend was in absolute shock as they were only 15. She said she kept waving to try to get her attention to try to get over there and tell her, don't do that. Mm-hmm. But because of all the cars, um, they couldn't see each other, so the friend got on the bus. Ed picked her up. He again drove to a remote area, and they talked for about two and a half hours. Ed would later say in an interview they talked about what she was doing in school. He actually shared what was wrong with him. He lied to her and acted like he was going to commit suicide and that she had only been abducted. He stated she was very cooperative. Eventually, he put tape over her mouth. He pulled a gun on her before accidentally locking himself out of his car. However, she let him back inside, despite the fact the gun was in the car. Back inside, he proceeded to choke her unconscious, assault her, and kill her. Ed then packed up her body into the trunk of his car, went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks, and then returned to his apartment. Of course. He was thirsty. He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of his car, admiring his catch like a fisherman. Back at his apartment, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse, then dismembered her body in a bathtub and disposed of the remains in a similar manner to his previous victims. Her mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put up hundreds of flyers asking for information, but did not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or status. Because there wasn't evidence to support a crime had been committed, they treated it like a runaway juvenile. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this a million times. There were so many runaways being reported at this time that the police were not taking most of them seriously. The difference, though, here was that her mom knew for a fact that she, where she was supposed to be. She was supposed to be the dance studio. She was supposed to take the bus. She never showed up to the dance studio. So her mom's argument is like, listen, I get there's a lot of kids running away, but this is clearly mm-hmm. not a case of that. Her mom was a single mom who had raised her. I can't even imagine how heartbreaking it was. And that poor friend. Oh, I watched an interview with a friend and it's like, you could just tell this friend was just devastated. Oh, Still yeah. has like remorse. Like what could you have done? Nothing for the record. The friend yeah, could not have done think, anything. You still think you could for do something. For sure. You, know? you still, that's going to always play on your mind. 
With heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area, students have been advised to accept rides only from cars with university stickers on them. Let me guess. You got a university sticker. From Clarnell. Oh, no. However, uh, students weren't having it and viewed it as a way to try and stop hitchhiking, so most of them said, screw the warnings. Oh. In their defense, they also weren't getting a lot of information from police, so they probably weren't maybe aware of how dire the risk was. I get that, but at the same time, remember, the police want to keep that stuff. They also didn't trust the police at this time. There was Remember, this is the, the, there's a lot of distrust yeah. between law enforcement, yeah. the students, and vice versa. Um, there was the anti-war Vietnam protest being yeah, organized. Yep, 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 yep. Okay. So this is a really, really awkward time, tough for... time, mm-hmm. um, and especially just with the the college students. Like you know, this is a newer college, anyways. The city, the police, in their defense, I guess to a point, also aren't built for this. Like we said no. when we started this, like they the, a bike theft was a situation. And now they have this. So just from yeah. a staffing training perspective. People thought maybe it was some, like, commune hippie cult that was doing this. Okay. However, cops rejected that theory because the suspect they believed had to know the area in the backwoods. The thing is, like, with him, he, like, did it in the right location. It's a city on the grow. So, like you're saying, everything is really its infancy. The college, the police force, everything. Yeah, I mean, it's so pretty it's like, he, it's like how he got trained is he also then found the perfect area to do all this. Well, and again, he was given, like, sexual assault, rape, murder for dummies. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> why, that, that's why I was his saying his formative training. years. That's why I was saying his training. Yeah, killer boot know? camp. On January 7th, Ugh. 1973, Ed, who had moved back in with his mother at this point, again. was driving around Cabrillo College when he picked up an 18-year-old student, Cynthia Ann Cindy Shaw. He had just picked up a brand new 22 automatic pistol. When she started to get scared, he pointed the gun at her head and kept driving. They went past Cabrillo College where she had asked to go. She was living with a family she was taking care of, the kids, and was saving to get her own car. He drove to a wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He talked her into getting into the trunk of the car um, where he would then again shoot her. He then drove his car to his mother's house where he kept her body hidden in the closet in his room overnight. When his mother left for work the next morning, he again had sexual intercourse with the corpse, removed the bullet from her, then dismembered and decapitated her in his mother's bathtub. This, as if we haven't already reached the epitome of fucked up, Mm -hmm. he kept her severed head for several days, regularly engaging in sex with it, and then buried the head in his mother's garden, facing up toward the bedroom. I know. I'm telling you, it's like just so you can look out the window and think it's looking back up at one hundred. Actually, after his arrest, he stated he did this because he always wanted to know that she was looking up at him. Oh. He discarded the rest of her remains by throwing them off a cliff. The parents that she was taking care of their children let her mom know she hadn't been home in three days. At first, they didn't want to draw any negative conclusions, but clearly felt like something was wrong. Yeah. Over the course of the following weeks, her torso washed up in Santa Cruz. A hand was found by a surfer. All except her head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle. A pathologist determined that she had been cut into pieces with a power saw. Her family was obviously devastated. Her sister never recovered and became a drug addict and died at 33, which this is something that a lot of people don't think about is the devastation that happens to the families, the loved ones. It's not just the victims that die. I mean, the, and we've seen this. And the one that jumps to my mind right away is like the BTK case, like the, the son, you know, who is almost entire family. And I'm completely blanking right now. And I feel so disrespectful. They're his first victim. Like ended up like doing drugs, going to jail. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just, it, there's just such the ripple like, effect is like, just like how you so said the grandpa up. was collateral damage. So can the victim's families. 
I mean, and friends. I mean, like, you don't know how things impact people in different ways. Everybody that's really close to the victim. At this point, the police, like I said earlier, were in way over their heads. They weren't really trained for this. By January of 1973, there were 13 different homicides in Santa Cruz that cops were investigating, which is a huge number for this small and unexperienced Mm -hmm. department. Most were gunshot victims. There was a woman and her two sons uh, that were found in their remote cabin. A Catholic priest had been stabbed in his confessional in church. Like, what the fuck? I don't know what you were confessing that you felt you had to also kill the priest, but, um, I mean, this is a lot. And also, are they related? Are they not? They're asking questions because of the dismemberment. Was it a butcher? Was it a doctor? Um, They really started to focus on the fact they thought this was somebody who was extremely intelligent. Um, This is definitely not a random monster um, who's doing, like, spur-of-the-moment killings. This is a calculated person who's getting better with each kill. Yeah. Yeah. We... We would find out later that some of the things Ed started to do was wear dark color so blood couldn't be seen. Oh, he would reach over and put chapstick in the handle of the car so they couldn't get the handle open. Like there's those older cars, you know, where like the where you pull it. So he'd put chapstick in there so it like jam the door handle. Which reminds me, what is that movie? Oh was it like a, this along came a spider or something where they get in the cab and the lock in the back is removed and it's a spike? And they get locked in the back of the cab. And so they can't oh, get out. You can't, like, pull the lock open because it's a no. spike. Every time I get into an Uber or a taxi, I immediately look at the lock to see if it's there. He wasn't leaving any evidence. Uh, his crimes were crossing county lines, different agencies, different cities, which we know creates, you know, jurisdiction issues, communication challenges, destroying the bodies. He was doing everything he possibly can. And remember, during this time, he's hanging out at the jury room, hearing cops say, this person's smart, calculated. So he's purposely being this drunk, goofy idiot that they're like, there'd be no way they could think it was him. Mm. He's not smart enough. On February 5th, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Ed left his house in search of possible victims. He encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen uh, Lewish Alice Alley. Or Alice was her name. She, Alice... Ugh. Alice was her name. Her friends call her Allison. (laughs) Talking is hard. According to Ed, Rosalind entered his car first. Later, she reassured Alice to also enter. Mm. Ed said that Alice seemed cautious and most likely would not have gotten in without uh, Rosalind saying it was okay. Plus, I'm sure to Alice, she saw Ed and thought that they were probably a couple. No, they were together. I mean, think about like the Ken and Barbie killers. Yeah. We haven't covered like Ian and Maura Bradley yet. Um, they're next fucking level. Um, Fred and Mae West. You have these couples that men purposely have women with them because it disarms people and yeah. thinks, oh, okay, yeah. there's a woman in the car. He first fatally shot Rosalind and then Alice with his pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. He brought his victims back to his mother's house. Again. He's consistent. This time he beheaded them in his car carried the headless corpses into his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. Like at any time, does mother like hear anything in the, in the bedroom? Clarnell, from what I read was drunk all the time. Wow, so and if she was home, she was in her room. And think about like, she probably didn't even know what she was hearing then. Think about John Wayne Gacy. He lived with, was his mom or his grandmother. He was killing people in the basement and burying the bodies right underneath the porch. That's true. And she had no idea. Yeah. Some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later. More were found near Route 1 in March. Both bodies had been decapitated and the hands of one had been cut off. They had been shot to death but were identified by their clothing. Now, this is also absolutely ridiculous. At this point now, cops are starting to think maybe it's a lesbian killer because women wouldn't get into a car with a man, but they would a woman. That is, we're going to keep it. Far off. That's quite a theory. When questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated them, we said this earlier, but he added more context. What? No, nothing. Oh. The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Mm Mm-hmm. 
at the time of Ed's murders, two other serial killers, John Lindley Frazier and Herbert Mullins, were also um, on their own crime spree in the area, resulting in Santa Cruz receiving the nickname the murder capital of the world and the press. Mm. And February 13th, 1973, again, this is all happening at the same time, there's a shooting in Santa Cruz with a vehicle description. The person was arrested, which ended up being Herbert Mullins. They were hoping that he could be responsible for all the crimes and they could have their guy. The community also thought at this point things were going to stop. However, they quickly realized that he was not the guy for all their crimes. Ed had many guns, but one of the last guns that he bought was a Magnum with a six-inch barrel on it. This, I mean, this is a yeah, that's, fucking weapon. That's a gun. He bought them all legally, but was worried the cops were going to start looking for him. In April 1973, a notification from a dealer came through to the police for a record of sale on a handgun that had been bought by Edmund Kemper III. It was a 44, like I said, this huge gun, yep, same as Dirty Harry. I didn't know that. Oh, I read yeah. that. When he bought it, they matched that it had been convicted of a double homicide years earlier. But again, his records had been sealed. Mm-hmm. While they were waiting for the courts to decide if they could confiscate the handgun, um, they started to do a little more research. Uh, again, to the cops, some of which know, knew him from the bar, um, they were like, oh, we got this. We'll just go take the guns. They were like, yes, you can confiscate the weapon. So the cops were like, we know Ed. I'm sure he's harmless. We'll just go grab the weapon. They approached the fourplex where he was living with his mom. While they're there, a car pulls up. They approach the vehicle and ask the person in the vehicle if they can talk to him for a second. It was Ed. Ed gets out. The police explain the situation. He was very cooperative and said, sure, you can have the gun. It's in the trunk. As he was pulling the keys out, the police instinctively split. So when they took each side, so they had started to approach the vehicle together from mm-hmm. the left. And then one of the cops like, hmm, from their training, he's like, wait, we should surround the vehicle. Yep. So the other cop broke off and went the other direction. Ed opened the trunk. He gave them the gun, the receipt, and the police left. Ed would later tell that officer when, after he was arrested, if they hadn't separated, he was going to kill them both probably. Oh, wow. He would also say that once the gun was taken, he was paranoid and knew time was uh, closing in. April 20th, 1973. Can you imagine that? He literally was being interviewed and told that officer, I was probably going to kill you. Mm -hmm. So good for those officers for following their training. On April 20th, 1973, Ed was awakened by his mother, Clarnell, coming home from a party. While sitting in bed reading a book, she noticed Ed enter her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Ed replied, no, good night. Again, he knew the cops were closing in, and there was one more thing that he wanted to take care of. Mommy? He went back to his room and waited for her to sleep. He had a few ciggies, waited about an hour. He did say later he was having a devil angel situation. Should he do it? Should he not? Finally, uh, devil won out. He snuck back into her room. In an interview, he said he stood there and stared at her sleeping for two to three minutes and started to get very nervous and agitated. I mean, think about this. This is the climax of his life. This is literally his childhood fantasies about to play out. He had a sharp knife in one hand and a claw hammer in the other. He beat her with the claw hammer and then slit her throat with the knife. He beheaded her and humiliated her corpse. He said in the 1984 interview that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour, threw darts at it until his voice was sore and hoarse, but he was satisfied. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and put them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back into the sink. He would later say that seemed appropriate. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. I mean, the sarcasm. That seemed appropriate as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Mm. This is really horrible. I I almost don't want to share this, but we've already come this far. He then put his male part into her mouth and did some things with his mother's head. 
He hid his mother's corpse in a closet and then went to drink at a nearby bar. <clears throat> he left his car with his guns in it at home and took her car. In truth, Ed would later say his mother had been his target the whole time. My victims represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what was important to her, and I was destroying it. The next day, Ed fled the scene. He drove non... Wait a minute. What time is it? 29.45. Okay. 20.45? Yeah. 29.45. 29.45. Okay. And now it's 30. <clears throat> okay. The next day, Ed fled the scene. Like, the jig is up. I'm old. Yeah. He drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, <clears throat> excuse me, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for over the thousand mile journey of 28 hours straight. He had over 200 rounds of ammunition. He had three guns, like I said, hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car, and believed that he was the target of an active manhunt. So in his brain, he has created this situation where now he is like a criminal on the run. Mm -hmm. Four days later, <laughs> after not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother, uh, he arrived in Pueblo, where he found a phone booth, called the police, and confessed to the murder. The police did not take the call seriously and told him to call back at a later time. Now, what's important to note, and we'll get to it in more detail, it's not just his mother who is dead in the home. His mother's friend had came over um, after he had killed his mom, and he basically killed her, hid her body, because his story was going to be they had gone on vacation together. So another probably innocent, well, they're all innocent, well, but yeah. another unfortunate collateral. Another victim. Yeah, yeah another collateral victim. damage, another like version of grandpa. Yep. So the officer basically <clears throat> said, I don't believe you. This is wild. We're not taking this seriously and told him to call back at a later mm -hmm. time. The officer basically said something like, I'm not going to wake up the lieutenant, call back in the morning, hung up. Several hours later, Ed called back again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. The same cop that answered said something along the lines of, Ed, I told you I'm not waking up the lieutenant. Um, another, cop who Ed, uh, another cop who knew Ed was sitting there and finally said to this other officer, who are you talking to? And the cop said, Ed Kemper. The cop who knew him took the phone and, said, and Ed said to him, I know you guys all know it's me and you're going to kill me. The cop said to him, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they really didn't. Mm -mm. And Ed said, well, I killed my mom and I just want to give myself up. I'm in Pueblo. They then called Pueblo PD and tell them, can you please go get this gentleman? Yeah. <laughs> they wake up the lieutenant and ask him if he knows Ed. He says, yes, I just took his gun. Ed gets a hold of the lieutenant because he knows where he lives. So at five in the morning, the lieutenant goes over to Ed's home. They get to the house and did a canvas of the neighborhood. The people who lived upstairs said that there had been a strange odor for the last day or two. Mm. The cops went around the back and broke into a window to get inside. When they walked in, they got the smell they knew right away. Yep. They first went to Clarnell's room, opened the closet, pulled back a sheet, and saw flesh, hair, and blood. They waited for forensics to do um, other investigating. Like at that point when the detectives saw that, they had to immediately get out of there because it's become an active crime, crime scene. scene. Forensics. Uh, once they arrived, they pulled the bed from the wall um, where the pillows were and, and there was just solid blood like everywhere. In the blood, they found a half sheet of paper that was a confession. It said, not sloppy and incomplete. Gents, just a lack of time. Got things to do. It's approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. He felt the need to justify the fact that the crime scene, that he wasn't sloppy. He was just in a hurry. They started to pull out shoeboxes and were finding body parts, arms, hands, feet, legs, they lifted the towel and they saw the severed head. Mm. In interviews, police officers who worked this case said to this day, they're still not okay. Seeing this, oh, they had oh. to just, uh, I mean, how would you be? What they <coughs> didn't realize at this time is there was another body, like we had talked about. Clarnell's best friend, who was found in the front closet and had been beaten to death. 
Ed shared that upon his return home that night that he killed his mom. He invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor, Sally, as her friends called her Hallett, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When she arrived, Ed strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Sally had gone away on vacation. He said he put her in a chokehold and she was dead five minutes after she walked in the door. They found bloody, bloody bras and IDs of other victims. This is when the cops realized that they had what would be dubbed the co-ed killer. Upon his capture, Ed confessed to the murders of six students. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Ed said the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real, um, any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I said to hell with it and called it all off. Plus, he had killed Clarnell, who, yeah, let's be real, that's... That was the main target. That's the main character. Playboy police arrested him and held him while they waited for the lieutenant who knew Ed to get out to Pueblo to interview him. When Ed walked into the interview room, Ed immediately said hi to Mickey, who was the lieutenant, called him by his first name. They talked for six hours where he shared all about his victims, locations of disposal, and probably more details, quite frankly, than they wanted to hear. They drove him back to Santa Cruz, where they asked him if he'd be able to show them where the bodies were. He agreed to give the family's closure. I wouldn't really say it's remorse, but we do have killers who will intentionally not share where the bodies yeah. are to at least allow these victims' families to bury them or have closure. I mean, I, at least I suppose there's that. The first thing they found was an arm from Ico, um, and then they just continued going to different spots where he said there were body parts and just kept finding body parts everywhere. He was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7th, 1973. He was assigned the chief public defender, attorney Jim Jackson, uh, due to his explicit and detailed confession. Their only option was to plead not guilty by insanity. Apparently, Ed tried to uh, commit suicide twice while in custody. His trial went ahead on October 23rd, 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found him to be legally sane. Uh, one of them, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile records as the diagnosis um, that he was once psychotic. Didn't agree with that. He also interviewed Ed under truth serum and uh, told the courts that Ed had told them, uh, told him under this truth serum, he had engaged in cannibalism alleging that he had sliced flesh from the legs of his victims, cooked it, and consumed it in a casserole. He also said that Ico was the only one that he didn't really want to kill, but he had fast and hard rules that he had to kill so no one would tell on him. He would later, by the way, come back and deny the cannibalism and okay. say that he never actually did that. Did he? Didn't he? Who knows? He was pretty, like, forthright with everything else that happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, saying that you engage yeah, he, in necrophilia like, and yeah. I, I feel like why would you stop then and not just admit to the cannibalism yeah so uh who knows so by legal standards he was determined to be sane um from a psychological perspective they basically thought he was insane this is really interesting to me so california uses what's called the m i think it's the m not standard which is that if the defendant if they okay so if the defendant they can establish a defense on the ground of insanity it must clearly be proven that at the time of committing the act, the party accused was under such a defective reason from disease or mind and did not know the nature or quality of what they were doing. So while they said, yes, he does have a psychological disorder, at the time of what he was doing, he knew that it was wrong. So therefore, he could stand trial. On November 1st, 1973, he took the stand. He testified that he killed the victims because he wanted them for himself like possessions and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could have been committed only by somebody um, with an apparent mind. He said that the two, uh, that two beings inhabited his body, that when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. Number eight, the six man, six woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring him sane and guilty on all counts of eight. Wow. Really? He's a homicide. Five hours. I would have thought less time that they would have just been like, nope, uh, we have an idea. I don't know. It's really easy to say that. You've never having been on a jury, 
I don't know. True. He asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. <laughs> However, uh, with a moratorium placed on capital that. punishment by the Supreme Court, he instead received seven years to life for each count, which will be served concurrently. He was sentenced to and is still in the California uh, Medical Facility in Vacaville. I think I say it, Vacaville, Vacaville. I think that's how the document said it, California. So he's still alive? Oh, yeah, he's still alive. We're going to get to that. Shortly wow. after arriving at the medical facility in 1973, he was admitted to a psychiatrist for reevaluation. He was re-diagnosed with antisocial, narcissistic, and schizophrenic personality disorders. In the California medical facility where he is, uh, he was incarcerated in the same prison block as Herbert Mullen, who we talked about earlier, and Charles Manson. Ed had a particular disdain for Mullen, who committed his murders at the same time as Ed, he described Mullen as a cold-blooded killer, just killing everybody he saw for no good reason. I would love to know the morality righteousness that Ed Kemper's feeling. Yeah. To judge another serial killer. <laughs> yeah, he's in there like, oh, these guys, you know. Yeah. They're, they're they're terrible, horrible human beings. Now me, I, I had uh, mental issues. Yeah, I, I, I'm whatever throne that you sit on there, pal. Yeah, no kidding. Ed manipulated and physically intimidated Mullen, who was only five nine. <laughs> Ed yeah, said that much shorter. Ed said that Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when someone tried to watch TV. So I threw water on him to shut him up. Then when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he has permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. Oh, where'd you learn that there, Ed? But isn't that <laughs> wild? Like that he says things like that, and you're like, holy shit! That it's like training a rat. Like you know, it's. Well, yeah, he's not an idiot. As we, as we saw in the psych ward, that's where he got, where he learned all these skills and all these he's treating things. Yeah. This man like he's his pet. Exactly. We'll go with, and we'll cover Herbert Mullen potentially another case. But I was just intrigued to learn more about Herbert Mullen. So just real quick. Oh yeah. Uh, he was a serial killer who killed 13 people in California in the early 1970s. He confessed to the killings, which he claimed prevented earthquakes. In 1973, so he he killed people to prevent earthquakes. And were there any earthquakes in the 70s? Well, in 1973, after a trial determined whether he was legally sane, um, insane, or culpable, he was convicted of two murders in the first degree, nine in the second degree, and sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, he was denied parole eight times. Oh, gasp. <laughs> Only eight? So that is a total sidetrack, but I was just really intrigued about who's this person that Ed Kemper felt was like a shit stain on Enjoy humanity. Enjoy this mini podcast on... Of which Ed Kemper is also a skid mark, so whatever. Mm -hmm. Ed remains among the general population in the prison and is considered a model prisoner. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and is, was an accomplished craftsman and ceramic cup maker. He also, I didn't know this, is a prolific narrator of audiobooks for charity program that prepares materials for visually impaired people. A 1987 LA Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prison's program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books with several hundred completed in his name. Can you imagine if you were listening yeah, to an audio book like, and it's uh, Ed fucking Kemper? Yeah. Oh my God, this book on tape was great. Now, Who's a narrator? If you oh listen my God, to a book, Ed? If you listen to a book after 2015, you're okay. He retired from that position in 2015. Oh, why could he? Why did he retire? After he experienced a stroke and was declared mentally disabled. Oh, okay. Fair enough. He received his first violation report in 2016 after failing to provide a urine sample. While in prison, he has provided a number of interviews, including a segment in a 1982 documentary called The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in a 1984 documentary, Murder, No Apparent Reason. He was interviewed three times by Robert Ressler. That name should sound familiar. During the third time, uh, the guards didn't respond uh, when Robert was calling for them, and he found himself locked in a small room alone with Ed, who started to make death threats and taunting him. When the guard finally came, Ed claimed that he was just kidding. His interviews have contributed... Yeah, nice joke there, JK. pal. His interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers. Okay. FBI, FBI profiler John Douglas described Kemper as among the brightest of prisoner inmates that he has interviewed and capable of rare insight for a violent criminal. He further added that he personally liked Kemper, referring to him as friendly, open, sensitive, and having a good sense of humor, 
which is super fucked up. But if you watch these interviews, I'm telling you, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, you remember everything that he's done. It's like completely diabolical and mind blowing. Yeah, but have <clears throat> all these people that have said this, have they been male? Have they been men? Oh, that's a good point. Every interview I've seen has been a man interviewing. Because I would, I would, I'd, I'm not saying that if a woman went in and did it, it wouldn't happen. I'm just saying, I think. It would be a different dynamic, though. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about that. But wow, two for two today. So that's that's a that's, that's a thing. fair point. I don't know. I'm going to look into that. The interviews I saw by psychiatrists, journalists were mostly men. I don't know. Right. That's a good point. I'll have to look into that. Some people, though, who know Ed. Because like you said, like how he's still a 15 year old teenager. If you're a boy when you're 15, who are you? It's a lot easier to get along with your male friends than with any female. Well, also, friends. he hated his mother. She was the and crux that's of another everything. thing too. Yeah, you see that in a lot of killers like Gein. Like he didn't know they how have to talk to females. And terrible then he mother his mom. relationships, and that's part of what that's is too, a huge trigger. It's a really wrongs, good point. So. Some people who know Ed personally call bullshit that he's changed. It's laughable. Said Ed's half brother. Um, he's a complete sociopath. He could look you straight in the eye and tell you how sorry he is for everything he did while at the same time plotting your demise and you'd never have a clue. That could also be true as well. Ed has been very forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and stated that he participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. At the end of Murder, No Apparent Motive, he said, there's somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people and wants to, and rages inside and struggles with that feeling or is so sure they have it under control. They need to talk to someone um, about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it starts. He then, however, turns around and says, if I killed them, you know, they couldn't reject me as a man. It was more or less making a doll out of a human being and carrying out my fantasies of the doll, a living human doll. And that's to the point of Ed's half brother. What do you believe? Exactly. We're almost done here. I thought this was interesting. February 10th, 1983, Don Smarto, who is a prison evangelist and pastor in Dallas, would go to prisons and preach and share uh, with inmates and film their testimonies. February 10th, 1983, Don visited Vacaville. He talked to two prisoners, and his last prisoner of the day was Ed. Ed had been in prison at this point for 17 years. He said he had found Christ. In the hole during lockup. Over a period of three years, he's in the hole, and he says he became a human being. During the break, the guard walked over and told Don that he was talking to Ed Kemper. He had no idea. Him and Ed began writing each other for four years. Don really pushed to find out if he had really found God or if it was bullshit. In one letter, Don asked Ed if he loved his mom. Ed said, "Um, that's a hard one. Instinctively, the answer should be yes, but I never felt that love. And I mean, Clarnell certainly wasn't yeah, if you listen, a prime candidate for being loved. But if oh, you're who knows what Clarnell's childhood yeah. was like? I'm not justifying her behavior no. either, but we don't know how Clarnell was raised. Yeah. But judging by her ex-husband, you know, Ed the second, you know, he thought war was better than being with her. But we don't know how Clarnell came to be. Maybe she had a shitty fucking childhood, too. I I understand that. No, I will say that you have to be a certain type of asshole to have somebody say they'd prefer to be Mm -hmm. in a war zone than married to you. And then you, like you said before, they had that codependent, you know, toxic relationship. Who knows? Ed was first eligible for parole in 1979. He was denied, denied parole. <laughs> 80, 81, 82, 85. Denied, 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 <laughs> 88. denied. Um, he actually, in 88, on his own, said, society is not ready for me. <laughs> I can't fault them. He was denied parole in 91, 94, waived his right to a hearing in 97, 2002. 2007, he was denied parole, um, where the prosecutor basically said, we don't care how much of a model prisoner that you are because of the enormity of your crimes. Fair enough. 2012, Ed's like, yeah, I'm all set, I'll pass. 17, denied. Yeah, it seems he like he's eligible for parole next year in 2024. We should go. Road trip. Yeah, interesting. Um, there, How old it, would he be then? There was a story that basically said that he had an operation when he was in prison and was given too much anesthesia or pain medication, and it took days to wear off. He said during that time, he had a startling insight and clarity about himself. 
where he realized that the world saw him as a monster and he came to feel as a monster for the first time he felt shame and remorse. He said the feelings wore off with the drugs and he went back to being somewhat kind of matter of fact placid self. Since then, he's had several strokes and his shutdown doesn't talk to anyone, uh, report media. He's a recluse and he's still alive to this day. Not in great health. No, not strongly doubt that 2024 is going to be the year that he is uh, released. But what a complex person. Mm -hmm. There's the evil, the uh, it's typically with serial killers. You have like a BTK who's just very like not remorseful, just Mm -hmm. very pragmatic. This is, I mean, he is a complex human being. Very. He did say if he ever got parole, he wanted to be a missionary and visit prisoners dying of AIDS and serve them. He said visiting sick inmates gives him comfort. So that's where we're at with that. It's he's still alive. Horrible for the deaths and the victims, their families to have to live through that. And then to hear afterward what happened to your loved ones. I mean, mm-hmm. that's uh, extremely graphic, horrific. Yeah, because like you said, you want the the closure, but then you find out what happened before yeah, said closure. Absolutely it's terrible. Like, come on. Absolutely terrible. We will include the documentary links and the show notes, but again, just very sincere and heartfelt. And I, I know it was a while ago, but the pain, and it just continues, mm. I'm sure, to be passed on generationally. Yeah, absolutely. These people, I mean, they had sisters, brothers, family, cousins, nephews, nieces, right? Yeah. I mean, it never... Yeah, that could have been, you know, potential aunts and This will and forever uncles, be a part know, of their, their family's their lineage, siblings. too, so... Uh, so yeah, so I don't know. And then you, you said he was part of like Mindhunter, the TV series? He was on Mindhunter season one. I mean, he was one of the characters. Okay. It was pretty, I mean, there was a lot of things about it that were seen. I have to go back and watch it now, but just from thinking back to then, that seemed pretty accurate. That was a great, Mindhunter season one, I think was a little better, but feel free to disagree with me on that. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Megan, for your review. Really appreciate that. And you taking the time. Thank you to everybody who has uh, commented or subscribed on Apple, Google, Spotify, all the things. Again, Bad Human Pod on Instagram, Bad Human Podcast on Facebook, badhuman at gmail.com. If you would like to send us uh, some information or feedback. Yeah, feedback, information, case uh, suggestions. Yeah, definitely case suggestions. Please send us some ideas. and yeah, so we're going to go ahead and, and I'm probably going to go have a strong cocktail. Oh, that yeah, was that's rough. Uh, thank you all for listening. And as always, please remember to treat yourselves and each other with love, kindness, and respect. I'm K Mac. And I'm, of course, the answer. Good, Good night. night.